Again, I'll be reading from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. So please read along with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped forward, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask, dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. Good evening, everybody. Happy Easter to you. Uh, for those of you who may, be, who may be new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, lead pastor here. And last year on Easter was the first time I tried filming a sermon from my living room. And, you know, I was trying to set up the tripod on like a stack of books on top of a table and coordinating things with Kelsey and Titus. It wasn't that fun, and while I'm very grateful for how God matured me during that season, and I know a lot of you guys too, it's so good to be able to be here with you all in person and celebrate our resurrected Savior on Easter Sunday. And so um, what we're doing today and next week is we're following up on our sermon series, which we just finished, where we read the book of First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. And the reason why we're looking at these texts today is because we're going to get a window into how Peter became the man he did. He became one of the greatest leaders of the church and then wrote that wonderful letter that we walked through over the, over the past six months. And so while today's passage doesn't exclusively focus on Peter, uh, we'll look more at the interaction between Jesus and Peter next week. What's helpful about today is this takes place after the resurrection already happened. And so what you see is Jesus' followers living in light of the fact that Jesus has already resurrected, which is the same place we're in today. And this is instructive for us because so this was in just last year in 2020. There was a study that showed that apparently 66% of Americans actually do believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. That seems high to me, and I know with studies, numbers are always kind of iffy, but even if, say, 50%, of Americans profess to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, that should make you wonder, because as you look at how professing Christians have behaved, even in this past year, whether it's online or in churches, and if we look at our own hearts, 
You know, I think we can say that the reality of the resurrection isn't as consoling or as life-transforming as it should be. Because if Jesus really is the creator of the world, who became a man, died, and rose again, that changes a lot of things. And you can't just live like you used to. And so let's look at three simple ways that when you, if you do actually believe in the resurrection, it's not just, you know, some historical fact in the same way you know, um, you know, some other, some other fact from history, but it changes who you are. Let's look at three ways that it changes your life. So first we'll see, it gives you a new attitude toward relationships. Number two, it gives you a new attitude toward your present circumstances. And number three, it gives you a new identity. First, when you actually like take the resurrection into your heart, Christ along with that, it gives you a new attitude toward relationships, new attitude toward your present, and then it gives you a new identity. All right, so first, let's look at number one, a new attitude toward relationships. So let's read verse two and notice where the period is. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Period. They were together. Period. So being together was the purpose for being together. It was both the means and the end. They weren't together to work on a project. They just want to be together. And then verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And notice how they respond. Not, we'll go fishing with you. Not all of them were fishermen but we will go with you. They just wanted to be together. And you might be saying, okay, so what? And this wouldn't be weird unless you understand how unnatural it is that these specific people just wanted to be together. So let's look at Nathaniel and Thomas. So Nathaniel, you read about earlier in John, Nathaniel is what you could say um, a small town, kind of more credulous individuals, a stereotype. So there's this scene where Jesus meets him for the first time, and uh, Jesus says, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And we don't really know much context for that. All we know is Nathaniel didn't know that Jesus saw him. He goes, oh my gosh, Jesus, you saw me under the fig tree. You're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. And Jesus actually rebukes him. He says, whoa, Nathaniel, like, don't be so quick to believe. If you believe I'm the son of God just because I saw you under the fig tree, you know, then what else are you going to believe? So he rebukes him for just being like too quick to believe. And then on the other hand, we have Thomas. And Thomas, just the chapter before this, in 20, you know, he's your classic skeptic. And so when the disciples come to Thomas, they say, we've seen the risen Lord. How does he respond? I feel kind of bad for him because he's forever immortalized as saying this. But he says, you know, whoa, 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 guys, you know, don't be so quick to believe in myths. Unless I see and touch the nail marks in his hands, I will never believe. And I mean, if you just go onto Twitter or look at our politicians in the White House, you don't need to stretch your imagination to know that Nathaniel types and Thomas types don't typically get along and enjoy being together. You know, so Nathaniel types are like, yeah, you Thomas types, you think you're so elitist and urbane, and, but you have no idea what the real world is like. And then Thomas, you know, blue state types look at the Nathaniels, they're like, you're so credulous, you'll, you'll believe anything, you'll believe anything. And so I imagine on this boat, like, uh, Thomas was probably wearing a mask, and Nathaniel probably wasn't wearing a mask, and they're too soon. I, I don't know. But I, I thought it was funny. <laughs> Sorry if it was too soon. Okay, but what? But, but they're together, and they're enjoying being together. And then you have Peter and John, and John is a rationalist. He's the contemplative type. So in chapter 20, you see John gets to the tomb first. He raises Peter. John gets to the tomb first. And it says, John, uh, the word there. That John, when John looks in the tomb, he's reasoning at the tomb, like he's using his mind. And it's actually pretty smart. He lets Peter show up, and then he lets Peter go into the tomb first. That's brilliant. Like empty, dark tomb. Yeah, Peter, you go, you go in first. 
And then, you know, notice Peter, he's the action guy. He just, you know, dives into the tomb face first. And then notice in this, in this chapter, it's John, the rationalist, who sees it's the Lord, because he remembers some earlier stories. This is, for, like, familiar behavior for Jesus. And in verse 7, he says, it's the Lord. But because John's a contemplative, he just keeps thinking about it. But who, what, Peter is the one who jumps into the ocean and goes after Jesus. And, you know, if, if you're on one of these extremes, you know, you're a more pensive person or you're in action, it's really hard to put up with somebody who's on the opposite side of the spectrum. Like, especially if you work with them, you know, the Peter types is like, you know, you, John, you always, you know, you always need to form a committee before you decide to do anything. You never do anything. And John types are always getting angry at Peter's because you're never thinking. You're always just so quick to, to jump into stuff. But they're together. And they're enjoying being together. And the point is because how they're forging their relationships now is not how the world goes about forming friendships, which is, you know, normally how the world goes about forming friendships is you find people who are similar to you in temperament and maybe life stage and political beliefs, and those are your closest friends. But for these disciples, they have a new pulsating center of gravity about whom Jesus they form their friendships with. And so as we think about us today in the church, like one of the ways that you know Jesus isn't just an idea to you and you believe in the resurrection is that the way you go about friendships, especially in the church, looks a lot different. And in a lot of ways, it, it should feel very unnatural. And, you know, this in a way is encouraging. So how many times have you you've been at church, it's after church, and you just find yourself in front of somebody, so you start talking to them, or you're, you're in a community group talking with somebody, but in your head you're thinking, the only reason I'm talking with you right now is because I was assigned to this community group, <laughs> or because we're in the same church together. It, it should feel unnatural, because that's what Jesus does when he brings people together. And so just a question for you is, is this how you think about relationships in the church? Because people should look at your friendships and the people that you spend time with. And there is something to be said for having, you know, a few close friends who are very much like you. But also, you should have a a broad circle of people who are very unlike you. And not only does Jesus bring you together with people who are unlike you, but by being with other people who are different and committing to them in the context of a local church, it's the only way that you can know Jesus better which is very, you know, counterintuitive to our very American, you know, me and Jesus Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. So one, uh, I recently officiated a wedding, and one of my favorite things about weddings is when I'm there, you know, I often know the couple for a while before the wedding, but when I'm at the wedding, I get to meet people who've been friends with the couple for a long time. And I learned more things about the couple. So recently I officiated uh, Nick and Abby's wedding. And especially over the past three years, I've spent a lot of time with them. But at their wedding, I got to know them a lot better. <laughs> you know, so I got to meet Abby's sister. And sorry, Abby, I'm telling them what she said. But, you know, one of the things she shared during her toast was, you know, if you know Abby, she comes across like a, a rule follower. And I was like, yep, absolutely. She never breaks. And then, But then she went on to tell us all these stories about Abby actually isn't always a rule follower. And I was like, what? And all of a sudden, I knew Abby a lot. And when I saw Abby and Nick, like, interacting with people who they've known for years and from different circles, things about their personalities were brought out that I couldn't see when I would engage with them myself. You see, because me and myself, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, I'm not large enough to bring their whole person into activity. And if that's true of humans, how much more so of God? Because you can only know the full richness and depth of your Savior 
when you are together in a committed community with people who are committed to you, by through them, you actually learn more about Jesus. And so do we, do we have that here? I think we've grown in that, but we need to keep asking, you know, are we inviting other people who are different to, we, we should be a signpost towards this new kingdom that Jesus is creating. And for those of you who may be joining us, maybe online, maybe you're here, and maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you're not part of a church family, just my encouragement to you is it's very easy, especially in Northern Virginia, Arlington context, to think, well, yeah, just I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's true, but the only way you can really know Jesus fully is in the context of a community. Okay, so that's the first thing we see is we get a radical new attitude toward relationships. Number two, we have a new attitude toward the present. So let's look at verse 9 together. <clears throat> when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is a great scene. So the disciples, they've been up all night fishing, so they're exhausted. You know, they haven't eaten. They've been handling the boat. And they see Jesus on the shore, and the sun is rising over the beach. And Jesus cooks them a meal, like real wild-caught salmon or whatever fish they had. Fresh bread. Have you ever smelled fresh bread baking when you're starving? It smells so good. And that's what Jesus is cooking them, and that's what he's cooking for them. And then we get the impression here, you know, verse 12, where it says, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. We get, we get the impression that the disciples aren't saying much. They're just, they're sitting around this charcoal fire with Jesus, silent, taking it all in. And there's two reasons, I think, that they're not saying much. I think one is, they're still remembering their most, one of their most recent encounters with Jesus. You know, even though they were his best friends when Jesus was in his hour of greatest need, they all abandoned him. That's, that's pretty messed up. But yet when Jesus shows up now, he doesn't show up and like, boom, how do you like me now? I'm resurrected. No, he cooks them a meal and there's no tone of bitterness or resentment. And I, I don't think they have a category for this kind of care. He's just, he's feeding them and welcoming them. And the second reason I think they're not saying much is because the reality of the resurrection was still settling in. And here's what I mean by that. Like, we often think that, oh, you know, people in those days, those people in those days were very, like, very just eager to believe anything, you know, that came across. And so, of course, you know, they would believe that Jesus just rose from the dead. They had no category for a physical resurrection. They weren't, even though Jesus had told them he was going to rise again, they weren't actually expecting him to. But yet here he is, sure as the hands in front of their faces. You know, he's not a ghost because he's cooking and eating fish. He's very physical. And what he's doing for them is he's giving them a picture of the new creation. Because the new creation is going to be a physical world with all of the worst things about our world removed. And all of the best things amplified. And you see a picture of that, of that here. Like good food, water lapping on the shore complete relational belonging with no enmity between this group of people. They're sitting around a fire. Uh, as, as one person put it, you know, is there any pleasure so great on earth as a circle of friends sitting around a good fire? He's showing them a picture of what the new world is not just going to look like, but, it, but what it's going to 
feel like. And what Jesus says in John chapter 11 is, is he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Meaning if you trust in me, then the worst things that happen to you now will be the worst things that ever happen in your future will, will look and feel like this. No tears, no pain, fun, laughter, songs that touch your heart. And what's the application here? Because this can sound you know, kind of like lofty, maybe pie in the sky. How does it impact your present? And two things. One is, you know it impacts your present because it changed the disciples in their presence. So they went on, even though they had no social or political power, they had not much of, you know, by way of financial means, but yet they changed the world. You know, they crossed racial and socioeconomic divides in a highly racialized society. Uh, they, they really led the charge on giving value to women that the world has never seen, you know, the same values that our Western liberal democracy holds so dear as we should. But yet these people, they weren't necessarily courageous people, but because they believed in the resurrection, this gave them a poise even amidst their insecurities. And so I think two things we can learn from that. One is, uh, here's how I put it from, uh, so Tim Keller, some of you know him, some of you don't. He's well known in both Christian and non-Christian circles. He and his wife Kathy started a church in Manhattan. It was very successful. And, but, so Tim and Kathy, they're now in their 70s, and they're retired. But you know, up until last year, they were both very healthy. And so they, they expected to have about another 15 years or so of just very active, like, training of young pastors and so forth, when all of a sudden, Tim last year during 2020 got hit with pancreatic cancer. And pancreatic cancer is one of the most deadly forms of cancer. I think there's uh, only roughly 9% of people make it five years uh, if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And so all of a sudden, uh, Tim, like, death became very imminent. And in this article that he wrote in The Atlantic, um, it's called something like Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, he says, I had to learn to take my own medicine that I'd been giving people for 50 years, because he's counseled, you know, tens, hundreds of people on their deathbeds, and I realized just how much I wasn't really, like, hoping and taking a real assurance in the resurrection as I should be, and one of the things he said is, as him and Kathy have been weeping a lot through this, is he said, one of our greatest lessons here has been, we realized that the less we try to make this world heaven, the more we enjoy it. See, the, more, the less we try to make this world heaven, the more we enjoy it. And so he gave the example of, so Kathy, for her, one of her greatest joys in life are tied to locations. So for her, it's going to a vacation spot or places where they do Christmas. But she never fully, enjoy, fully enjoys it because on day one, as soon as she arrives, she's already counting down the days till she has to leave. You, know, you guys do that? So she always think, because she wants it to be heaven, but it's not. So she can't fully enjoy it. And for Tim, one of his greatest joys is, uh, you know, like ministry building and success. But he can never really appreciate what God's doing in the moment because he's always thinking about, okay, what's the next ministry initiative I'm going to start? But he said, when we stop burdening our like present circumstances and other people in our life, demanding that they give us heaven, when this world has never been, been designed to do that, we actually get so much more joy in the present because we're not expecting this world and other people to give us what only Christ gives in the new creation. And so hopefully all you see the connection, but you know, for you, I was just talking with one of our members this past week, and we were talking about how a lot of times, I think it's a stereotype, but it's often true that younger generations are more fragile when it comes to career. I think it's just harder for us to, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was equally true for older generations, but it's often harder for us to like just really continue to work well in a career where, where we don't feel like we're getting the recognition we want, we're not getting the satisfaction we want out of our job. But when you understand that your job has never been meant to satisfy you, it, it gives you so much more freedom in your work. 
or one of the reasons why people often get you know so dis, dis, um, disillusioned with their spouses or the fact that they don't have a spouse is because they're looking for this world to give them heaven, which only Jesus gives. So that's the first thing. It actually gives us so much more joy in the present when we look forward to the new creation. Here's the second thing. Um, for some of you, and I don't just think I'm talking with people who don't know Jesus, but for some of you, consider if the resurrection for you has the same impact on you, like to the same degree that somebody winning the lottery has an impact on me, right? Like it's something that, it's something cool that happens to somebody else, but who, like why do I care if somebody else won the lottery? You know, why do you care if Jesus resurrected from the dead? But what if that person who won the lottery was my wife? Now, that would be different, right? Because, hopefully, right, her riches would become my riches. And suddenly, I would have a whole lot more of at least felt financial security because I'm in union with Kelsey, right? And so if the resurrection of Jesus is true and you are in union with Christ— then what this means is you should you should have you can have so much more assurance and all I want to say here is um, this last year has been hard for a lot of people um, because of COVID because of other things and there's also I think this sense for some people that once we can just get back to life as it was like things will feel good but it, it won't in some ways it will uh, but in other ways we're going to have the same anxieties we're going to have the same fears and one thing that's become very clear to me over the past year is. Most, if not everybody in, in here, are, including me, are very fearful people, very anxious people. And for some of you, it's with your job. For others of you, it might be new um, children situations. For other people, it's something, right? But if the resurrection's true, and it is, the promise from Jesus is, is simply it's, it's going to be okay. Like, it's going to be okay. Because this Savior, who not only gave his life for you, but rose again from the dead for you, is absolutely for you. And everything will be okay. And so finally, number three, we see, not only do we get new relationships, new confidence in the present, but a new identity. So we see this when Peter dives into the water. And so we see it, where is it? Uh, Yeah, verse 7. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Now, so Peter, he puts his jacket on. That makes no sense, because when you jump into the water, you're supposed to remove your garments, but he puts it on. I think he just wasn't thinking, so he just jumps, he puts his jacket on, he jumps into the water, and it's tempting to think, okay, this is just, you know, impulsive Peter again. No, it's not. And here's the reason why you know it's not, because there was a nearly identical scene in Luke chapter 5, where once again the disciples were having a hard time catching fish, and they couldn't catch fish. Jesus shows up, tells them to cast the net over here, cast the net, they catch a bunch of fish. And what happens for Peter this time is he falls on his face before Jesus, and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinner. And this isn't false piety. This isn't false piety for Peter. The reason why he falls before Jesus and says, De- he's serious, like, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. The reason why he does this is because Peter's identity was tied up in him being a competent, moral person. And when your identity is tied up, your sense of worth comes from who, like your performance, which it always is, apart from Jesus. When you're in the presence of somebody whose orders of magnitude greater than you, in that area you take a lot of pride in, you suddenly feel very small. 
You know, so think about like the, the area for, you know, maybe for you it's your smarts. For others of you, it might be your athletic ability. For others of you, it might be, you know, you're just a competent person. For others of you, it could be you're an independent person. Someone shows up in your small pond and it's so clear to everyone around you that they are just infinitely better than you. And now all of a sudden your flaws are exposed in front of that person. You want them to get away. And so that's what's going on here for Peter. And one of the ways we know that his identity is tied up in his performance is because he announces to everybody, you know, even though everyone else is going to abandon you, Jesus, I will never abandon you. But then what happens, and we're told in Luke 22, when Jesus is getting grabbed by the mob, and as he's getting manhandled by the mob and getting ready, like getting, they're preparing him for his crucifixion, they're beginning to beat him. What happens is, is people come to Peter and they say, you know, don't you know this guy getting crucified? And just immediately goes, no, I've, I've, never, I've never known him. And this is something I, I just noticed this week as I was studying this. What Luke tells us is as Peter, Peter's not even done talking, saying, I don't even know him. And as Jesus is in the midst of everything, Jesus makes eye contact with him. Like, he, he locks eyes with Peter. Can you, can you imagine? There is no way you can recover from something like that. Unless. What, what Peter saw was Jesus, he, he continued to go forward to the cross for Peter. And why Peter became so changed is because when someone sees you at your worst... Like, this was Peter at his worst. And then gives you their best. And stays unconditionally committed to you. That's, that's like being loved by Jesus. And this changed Peter. And so that's why Peter in this he doesn't care what other people think of him. He doesn't care that people think he's silly. I'm sure he doesn't even care right now that we're kind of making fun of him for jumping in the water. He's just so joy-filled and self-forgetful that Jesus sees him to the bottom and loves him to the skies. That's all he's consumed with. And so for you here, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, um, you know, for religious people, there's often a sense of religious guilt, like, oh my gosh, I keep doing this thing, and I keep messing up, and God's upset at me. But even if you're not a religious person, or if you're a religious person, something that has become very clear, especially over the last 10 years, one thing that everybody resonates with and gets is shame. And shame is not like a bad feeling about something you've done. Shame is a bad sense of who you are. There's a sense of, like, your life and your personhood warrants a negative verdict somehow. And what the experts say and what, what all the TED Talks say is, you know, when that shameful voice comes in, because there's a shameful voice that says, you know, you're this kind of person. You're a fraud. And what the experts say is when the shaming voice comes in, you need to argue with the voice. You need to say, yeah, no, I'm not this kind of person, but here's, here's what I'm here to tell you because it's also what Jesus says. Do not argue with the shaming voice. You will lose every single time. And the reason why you're always going to lose is because the shaming voice has a much better memory than you, and it has a much clearer picture of you. you know, so it's always going to be able to find worse things about yourself, no matter how much you try it. And so what do you need to do? Because the shaming voice wins by getting you to look at yourself. And so how you overcome that is you need to do what Peter did. You need to look to Jesus. You need to look at Christ. 
And what the scriptures tell us is that underneath your longings for acceptance, underneath your feelings like you're a fraud, underneath your, your need to, to your, underneath your need to perform and belong, is you do stand before the ultimate perfect being, you know, that you feel that you do feel small before. But yet in your heart, you are the same as Peter, not only denying him but wanting nothing to do with him. You are a rebel before God. But yet this same God, he sees you at your worst. And then he gives you his best, and he goes to the cross, not just to die a sad death, but to take the judgment you deserve for your sin, and then rises from the dead so that when you believe in him, you get the resume of Jesus, you get the perfection of Jesus. And it only comes by looking to Christ. And so to close, I just want to give an example of of what this looks like, looking to Jesus. And it happened to a man named uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a uh, brilliant man. He lived in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, he went on to lead one of the greatest church planting movements in England. But when he was a teenager, he, he was a wreck. He wrestled with despair. For his whole life, he actually wrestled with depression. But when he was in, I think he was 15 or 16, he was walking along a road. It was snowing really hard. And so he just went inside a church just to get indoors from the snowstorm. And he goes into the church, and the main, the lead pastor wasn't there because the lead pastor couldn't make it amidst the snowstorm. So a layman who's never preached before just walks up to the pulpit because someone had to preach. So some of you watch out in case I ever can't make it here and I ask you to preach. And so Spurgeon's sitting in the back underneath the balcony, and uh, this is what the, the layman says. He just walks up, and the text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. And he says, he reads the text, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me. And the preacher began, My dear friends, this is a simple text. It says to belong to God, all you have to do is look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It's just look. Well, you needn't, you needn't go to college to learn to look. You don't need to be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Ah, but the text says, look unto me. Look to Jesus. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. The text says, look unto Jesus. Then the good man followed up the text by crying out. The Lord says, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. Spurgeon says, when the man had gone on for a good while like this, the man saw me sitting under the gallery, and he knew me to be a visitor. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey this text. Young man, look. Look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, the blow struck home, and I saw it at once. I'd been waiting to do 50 things to find God, but when I heard that word, look, the cloud was finally gone, the darkness had rolled away, so I looked, and I looked, and I looked, oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. Spurgeon went on, even being a man who every day battled with depression, went on to lead thousands to the joy in Christ, because he kept looking to Jesus. And it's true, that's always how Jesus works. He took Thomas, the greatest doubter in John, and turned him into the greatest confessor when he said, my Lord and my God. He took Mary, 
who was an emotional and mental wreck, who was an outcast, brought her into the inner ring and made her the first herald of the resurrected Jesus. He took Peter, impulsive Peter, and made him the rock on which Jesus built his church. And who knows what he can do with you? Because Christ is risen, everything's going to be okay, and all you need to do is look and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the resurrection. (laughs) What a precious gift it is, and help all of us here to look at Jesus Christ and live. Um, May may we just take him deep into our hearts and live as a new community as a result of him. Thank you so much for giving up your son for us and raising him from the grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.